should like plaster that on our walls. Yes, everything. Everyone's, everyone's got, got something. something. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You. I'm Annie Reese, and today I am joined by guest co-host Eve Jeffcoat. You might have heard Eve's on Afropunk, which is a great podcast. If you haven't checked it out already, you totally should. Or on Stuff of Life, uh, also an amazing podcast that is not doing new episodes anymore, but you can go and find the old archive and check that out. And Eve's and I, we have worked together for a while, and we've been trying to make this happen for a while, trying to get on the same get on the same podcast. Hi, so, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Eves, we're so excited to have you. We've been trying to have you on the show for a long time. Well, I'm really excited to finally be here. Yes. Um, yeah, I've been I've been hanging around, creeping and lurking around Sminty <laughs> for a while. She's just looking in the podcast <laughs> yeah, window. Looking in the window, just like, hey, when are you going to let me in? When are you going to let me in? <laughs> Slowly see um, your head rise up. <laughs> Eves. <laughs> yeah, we've... Uh, We've been trying for a while, and scheduling is always an interesting thing with so many busy people in our office, but we are thrilled to have you here today, and um, you pitched to me a topic that I honestly didn't know much about, what we're talking about today. Do you want to talk about what we're talking about and why you, you wanted to talk about it? Yeah, so what I want you to talk about today, and what we are going to talk about today, is working women and invisible illnesses, which is a long and very specific thing um, <laughs> because it, it comes at the intersection of many different issues, I think. But I guess the reason that I wanted to talk about it is because we really touch on a lot of these issues. Like we talk about people with disabilities. We talk about women's issues. We talk about illness, chronic illness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think framing it through a feminist lens and really amplifying the fact that there are specific issues that women with chronic illnesses and invisible disabilities face um, when they're in the workplace. And also, there are just a ton of people who who have chronic illnesses that you don't know about and you would never know about. And I think people think about disability in a really, in a way where they, there's a default person yeah. that they think about when they think about disability, and that's just not the case. So I think... It's just great to to really bring that to light. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad that you you pitched this because like I said, I didn't know too much about it. And it it is something that I don't think we talk about at all. When we did the episode with Annie Sagara on our episode about overcoming disability and kind of the problematic phrase that that is, mm-hmm. we got a lot of response back to it, a lot of stories and personal anecdotes. And I was telling you, I learned a lot from that episode as well. And and it shocked me how people feel comfortable coming up to people with disabilities and and pointing out, oh, well, you were using that wheelchair a moment ago. Right. So I guess you're you're faking or (laughs) just always questioning. (laughs) Ridiculous. Yeah. I think the thing about it too is that, you know, in thinking about not being educated on it. Like, that's really easy because people have such a range of disabilities. There are so many different things that people are dealing with when it comes to conditions. So you can't really know everything. Like, we're going to be continually learning about 
how people deal with their issues and how mm-hmm. they face their own issues and how they want to talk about it themselves, which is, you know, the most important thing, um, to listen to the people who are actually going <laughs> through yes. these things. Uh, but I think also we're in a really, you and I are in a really interesting position because we, we're we in the workplace right now. Yes. So this is kind of meta. Yeah. Because we're like, you know, we're able to be in our workplace and talk about this kind of thing. And at the same time, we're saying these things are not talked about in the workplace enough. I think that applies in our case as well. Like, we don't talk about it enough here, mm-hmm. yet we're here right now talking about it, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I completely agree. And it does tie into a lot of topics that we've discussed before. Um, emotional labor is a big one. And you turned me on to this, um, these badges, please offer me a seat badges. Yeah. I've, I've never heard of that or seen that before, but it's, it's a badge that you would wear, I would say, probably really helpful on um, public transportation. It's just a way of indicating that maybe you can't see what I'm dealing with, but I could really use a seat. Right. And I think that that's just a really good example of how people deal with their illnesses in a very everyday thing because I think these badges were in London is where they were instituted. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to pronounce your illness when you sign up to get the badge or anything like that. So there's nothing like that that's required of a person to get it. And they have these guidelines on how other people should be treated when they're on public transportation. But um, yeah, it's a really good example of how people face these things like every day. Yeah. In moments where it may be very comfortable for you, if you're a person who's not affected by your disabilities or you don't have any disabilities that would disrupt the way that you take public transportation, it's it's a it's a moment where you can say, Oh, like there are people who have different lives than I do. Yeah. Um, and maybe they're not in a wheelchair and they don't need to sit, or maybe they're not elderly um and need to sit. But there may be another reason that a person should really have a seat to make the experience of commuting from one place to another, which is such a, a thing that you should find comfort in. Like, yeah. um, as much like, as you can. We, we're in Atlanta, so we know how <laughs> yeah. terrible commutes can be. Yes. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess the thing about this topic is that there are so many. There's like, it's like a, a nesting doll. <laughs> yeah. Things. So there's this large category of like people with disabilities and there's women with disabilities and then there's women with disabilities in the workplace. And it's this like intersection of identity. So there's like this multiple discrimination that's going on there. So in thinking about women with disabilities in the workplace, you can break it down even further than that to women of color Mm -hmm. with disabilities in the workplace and queer women with disabilities in the workplace. And so... Beyond the sexism and the misogyny and the ableism that may happen in the workplace because of those identities, you can also have racism that happens as a part of it. Um, So, yeah, there are a ton of challenges, and I know that we won't be able to touch all of them. Yeah. That would be exhaustive. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, I guess the first thing I think of when I think of invisible illness um, is the term itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, obviously, like, words should be something that we're thinking of all the time when it comes to issues like this. And it's something that changes all the time. Mm-hmm. So, an invisible illness or disability specifically is something that's a physical, a mental, or a neurological condition 
that limits a person's movement, senses, or activities, and it's one that's invisible, which means that you can't see it right off the bat. And, and like, clearly, that's not something that a person with an invisible, quote-unquote, illness or disability would feel themselves because they're the sure. ones who are going through it. So it's something that is, you know, it's in power dynamic because it's really from the perspective of the person who doesn't have the disability or illness. Yeah. I am glad you you brought that up because it, it is important that we think about words. I, I've, I love words. Uh, I just had a conversation about this like literally an hour ago about we should really re-examine re- uh, a lot of words in our language and uh, where they come from because <laughs> past can be offensive. Yes. Um, so I really appreciate that you <laughs> you brought that up. Yeah, and I am guilty. You know, I have to check myself sometimes because you and I talked about yesterday how something that I <laughs> realize I say is like, oh, there's a blind spot here. Yeah. It's just like, okay, like there words are important and... There's just a range when it comes to, like, how much a disability affects a person and how it affects their performance and their day-to-day activities. So I think the most important thing is not to assume, but I would say not to assume in the direction where it's like, don't assume that they are not disabled. But I think it's more so okay to assume that a person does have a disability because just the sheer numbers, like, a large percentage of people in the world have disabilities. Yeah, um, according to the CDC, 27 million women in the U.S. have disabilities. And among women, Native Americans and African Americans, they have the highest percentage of those those disabilities. Yeah, and it's uh, like obviously a lot of those people also are in the workplace. (laughs) Yes. So we're going, when we're in the workplace, we're going to need to address these issues to make a more equitable workplace and a workplace that's safer for everybody. Yeah, because isn't that ideal? (laughs) Isn't that what we want? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I'll also add that the notion itself of invisible disability can be a little problematic because it operates like under this assumption that the disabled body has to be like hyper visible. Like you have to be, you have to have disabled on your forehead in red letters or something Mm -hmm. like that. And it's the responsibility of people with disabilities to declare themselves as such, which is not the case. Um, That burden shouldn't be on people with disabilities. And it's kind of like this thing where people with invisible disabilities are like twice removed because they're outside of this norm that is already outside of a norm. Like, people with disabilities are already othered. I will say using the term invisible illness is still important because it's still something that's not addressed enough Mm -hmm. and it's not talked about enough. So it's kind of necessary to still use it. So we remember and recognize and acknowledge the fact that there are people who have disabilities that we necessarily wouldn't assume based on our perceived notions of what a... Yeah. a person with disabilities should look like. Yeah, and um, like you were saying, don't assume. And I, I remember when I first went to when I went to college and I, I had all these new friends and we were learning about each other and I just was constantly falling into that trap of comparing myself to my friends, right? And they're what I saw as perfect life. And I, in every instance, it was one of the best life lessons I ever got. I would learn 
that they were dealing with all of this stuff right. that I didn't know about. And everyone's got something. Right. So I, I think that's a great thing to keep in mind. Yeah, we should, like, plaster that on our walls. Yes, everything. everyone's, everyone's got, got something. something. Yes. <laughs> and then underneath is my other saying, something always comes up because it does. <laughs> that's true. It's true, right? Um, and if we're talking about invisible disabilities, some, some examples are things like chronic pain or fatigue, HIV, endometriosis, epilepsy, narcolepsy, PTSD, irritable bowel syndrome, being deaf, or hard of hearing, and Lyme disease. And 54 million women have multiple chronic conditions, many of which would not be considered disabilities because they don't impair day-to-day activities. But that's a lot of women dealing with illnesses and chronic conditions every day, and a lot of those women, yes, are in the workplace. Yeah, and even though we are super familiar with all of those things you just named, and we can name a ton more illnesses, too, that really affect people and you might not necessarily see it, um, there is not much data on how women in the workplace who have disabilities are affected. And it's like that intersection, is it just doesn't exist. It's, and even when you break it down further to like trans women, it's just, it's not a ton of it out there. And to add to that, it's like women are left out of the policies and legislation yeah. that have to do with disabilities. Like there may be, there's data on women that are included in these in laws, and there's also data on disabilities, and it's included in laws. But just kind of thinking about the two together is mm-hmm. is not super common. And so, you know, women with disabilities are also often left out of the mainstream disability and women's movements. So it's just this a challenge um, to dig up stuff on. Yeah, <laughs> women with invisible illnesses in the workplace. Yeah, and I found some estimates up to 96% of illnesses are invisible. And I've talked before on this show about um, some of the things I'm dealing with. I actually didn't know that they qualified Mm -hmm. until I started Mm. doing the research. Yep, that's Mm -hmm. the point. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've been told by one... More than one person that my greatest skill is acting like everything's okay. <laughs> um, very, how do you feel about that? Were you were you upset that they said that to you, or were you like, you're probably right? I was kind of. It, it was one of those weird things where it almost felt like a loss. Like I had been pretending so well, mm-hmm. and for them to mm. to realize, like, oh no, right, you are dealing with these other things, and that's something we're going to talk about too. Is the the feeling that we've set up and shown time and time again in our media and in our society of failure, I think, or or being weak, Mm. uh, which I have definitely felt. Um, So I have a few, and one I've talked about um, chronic PTSD on here. I have migraines, um, which, again, I didn't know. Um, Chronic fatigue, Mm -hmm. one super bad ear, and an eating disorder that comes, comes and goes. But... I feel ashamed when I tell someone I have them, honestly. Yeah. And I feel like um, they won't believe me, that they'll think I'm weak or a faker. And I've more than once wished I had some kind of card. I could just show someone from a doctor that says, yes. Right. She, like she's, you need to legitimize what you're saying. Right. And um, I've had on the other side of that, I've had a doctor tell me, well, you can't be in that much pain because your face is totally fine or once you're laughing. But I feel like I've been socialized not to show weakness. Also, I laugh generally 
and it's like my response to pain. It's a weird thing, but some people do that. I wouldn't say that's weird. It's probably more common than you're making it to be right now. <laughs> I I think so. I think yeah. that's a pretty like it's like when you're scared and you laugh after. Yeah. It's just a reaction. Mm-hmm. And then on the other other side of the coin, I've had a doctor tell me to quit being such a baby when I did display signs of distress. What's wrong with being a baby? Anyway, <laughs> first of all, right. I hurts. like babies. <laughs> yeah. You don't like babies? I should have turned it around <laughs> exactly. on him. I like that, Eves. I'm going to remember that. Um, in my house, I've talked about before too, is very much one where you did not complain or whine. And yeah, that that story that we see that we talked about in our other episode around disability, the failure of not getting better, because that scene is like success, right? But mm. that is a problematic, very problematic arc and a way to look at things. But it's also just damaging and incorrect. Like you're not going to get better and better. Or like get through it. Yeah. Like I feel like that's something a lot of people say when you tell people that you have a condition. Like, oh, you'll get through it. You'll get better. And I can get that, like how that's reassuring. But also the reality is stuff is chronic Yeah, a lot of the times. And you just have to live your life as you see fit while dealing with the issue. Yeah. And I've definitely seen when I've told people before in the workplace that immediate, like, what does this mean for me? Mm-hmm. Look, and then the sort of implication, like, aren't you going to get past it? When is the end date for this? <laughs> How long am I going to have to put up with uh, We humans are always so worried about time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like how you said that. That makes it sound like you're, you're like a goddess of time. I am. Time. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you mortals with your foolish time constructs. <laughs> I think I've revealed too much about myself today. Yeah, I, I'm very intrigued, Eves. <laughs> I'm very intrigued. <laughs> Um, yeah, and to be clear, having a disability is an obstacle to getting work in the first place, right? Yeah. About 8 in 10 people with disabilities in the U.S. don't have jobs even though they desire to have jobs. And even then, men with disabilities are more likely to have a job than women with disabilities, which likely contributes to higher poverty rates in women with disabilities. And disability and poverty are like there's correlation there in general. Mm -hmm. And globally, unemployment rates are the highest among women with disabilities. The UN even estimates that 75% of women with disabilities are unemployed, and women with disabilities who are employed often earn less than men and women without disabilities. And once women with disabilities do have jobs, they face stuff like pay gaps, unequal hiring and promotion standards, and you know, all those systemic issues that go along with having more than one marginal identity. Yeah, all of those things. (laughs) According to HILDA, which is the Household Income and Labor Dynamics Australia data, um, nearly half of women dealing with chronic illness do not have access to paid holiday leave compared to 37% of men. And about one-third of women with chronic illness surveyed indicated they wanted to work more hours, which seems to suggest that flexible schedules around their illness are hard to come by. The article also talked about the socially acceptable role of a sick person and the manager's desire to do the, quote, right thing by offering only a lighter work role. (sighs) That's so annoying. Yes, heavy sigh indeed. Assumptions, assumptions. Quit doing it. Women with chronic illness also expressed dissatisfaction with advancement opportunities and reported feelings that they were not taken seriously when it came to promotions. They were also more likely to be underpaid. Yeah, uh ton of crappy stuff 
Yeah. Right? Um, yep. And a lot of services for people with disabilities, like we have to remember, were made with white men in mind. Like thinking about the term disability in the first place, it's something that's really centered around law. Um, and they only accommodate those with physical and visible disabilities. Not as if people with visible disabilities aren't also important, including, but really focusing on that. Whereas illnesses and disabilities associated with women have a lot of the time been written off as trivial and self-inflicted. Yeah. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, hysterics. Yes. You know. The histrionics. That yeah, women. Yeah, that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so the need is to raise the voices of those who are affected by illnesses and disabilities that we can't see. And for more equitable and safe workplaces that recognize and address the needs of women with invisible conditions. Um, there's this book called Women with Visible and Invisible Disabilities that really um, centers the experience of women that have disabilities. It's uh, several years old at this point. But there was a phrase that I really liked the way they put which is that in a healthy, supportive society, barriers are removed and opportunities for all people are provided without question. And I, like, that's, that's obvious, but it's just like, yeah. that's really important to highlight because it's like, yeah, people have experiences that you don't know about and you've never had, and they also deserve to work in an environment that is supportive to them. So... The barriers that are created against women with invisible illnesses when it comes to employment only serve to maintain this caste system we have set up. Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do with a, and we're going to talk about this a little later, um, a lack of empathy and Mm -hmm. an unwillingness to think about any experience outside of your own. Yeah, um, we need to talk about empathy more, and we need to talk about it more and not framing it as this thing that's like, we should keep on the hush-hush, like, oh, <laughs> It's okay that for us to talk about things like that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, just wanted to call out a couple of anecdotes that people have had, because I feel like it's really important to know that people are dealing, especially since there's not that much data yeah. out there on the subject, that people deal with this in real life, and we should listen to people. It's not always about data. The experiences that people themselves have mm-hmm. is very important as well. So there was one NPR article from 2015 that told the story of a woman named Carly Madosh, or Carly Madosh. I'm not sure how to pronounce that one. <laughs> hey, Carly. Hi. Um, <laughs> who's had Crohn's disease since she was 13 and had recently been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And that's something that could be considered a visible illness. And we'll talk about fibromyalgia a little bit later, too, because it is a women's illness. But they, it has a lot of symptoms like fatigue mm-hmm. um, and chronic pain that go along with it. And a lot of people debate over whether it's legit, it's medical legitimacy, essentially. Right. Um, so she said she would sometimes lay on the bathroom floor thinking, am I going to die? Should I jump out in front of traffic so that I can die? And she said that everyday tasks are difficult for her, even though nobody would be able to tell from the outside looking in. Um, She's had people judge her for stuff like using a handicapped parking tag and has had trouble getting accommodations from a potential employer, the story said. Another example is from the book Invisible, when Michelle Lent Hirsch talks about how she told her boss at a publication she was diagnosed with cancer. And her boss had confronted her demanding to know why she missed her second day of work because, yes, she found this out on her first day of work. Uh, She describes how she felt like she was stammering in the face of zero empathy and apologized for the timing of the disclosure. 
In response, her boss told her that she needed to be there working in the morning and to, quote, leave her cancer at the door. And there was no HR department or person at that magazine for Hirsch to turn to. Which is a thing for a lot of people. A lot of, unlike us, we have an HR department that we can turn to, but a lot of people have HR don't have HR departments at all, or the ones that they do are ineffective or are a problem. They're the ones who say things like "leave your cancer at the door." Yeah, yeah, I know personally. Um, so from people, um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, not trying to make this. Yeah, um, <laughs> so I feel like there are a lot of people who have been in situations like the author, like Michelle Lent Hirsch. Have been in as well. Yeah, and one thing before we move on to our next example, I wanted to include that she touched on in her book a little bit is the strain it puts on relationships. Um, from her book, quote, the woman gets a certain type of health issue. The marriage may be six to ten times more likely to end divorce. And she uses the example of Newt Gingrich, who has left two wives with illness, one with cancer, one with MS. And I, in my personal experience, I've only reached the point of telling someone in a relationship once about what I was dealing with, and I remember distinctly feeling like I was giving him a weapon to hurt me with. It mm. was a very scary feeling, and I suppose that's what vulnerability is mm-hmm. in general. I felt like I was giving up a card, and if we ever broke up, or even like stayed in the relationship, that it could be weaponized against me. And the... The work of hiding it from someone you spent so much of your time with, it was exhausting and it hurt our relationship. And it was definitely one of the reasons our relationship ended. So I think that's another thing to talk about too is... <laughs> I remember I've gotten very... In my dating life, I've become very um, first date. Look, I'm not looking for this. this <laughs> and I remember when I first started dating this person... I told him in the beginning, there are things that that you don't know and that, that I really struggle with and I, they're going to impact our relationship. And he was so optimistic about it. And I don't blame him for it, but there was that sense of we'll get past it, we'll get over it. And I was just in the back of my head thinking kind of cynically, no, we won't. Yeah. I don't know why when you said you... <laughs> You tell a person that this is how it is. I just imagine you like smoking a cigarette. Like, <laughs> listen here. <laughs> I, <laughs> like, I kind of love it, honestly. <laughs> this one guy a couple weeks ago, he definitely was not expecting that. Um, but I think it's good to get it out here. Not that I'm in any rush for any kind of thing, but I find that people around my age are, and I just don't want to waste anyone's time, you know? I feel you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But moving on from my own personal <laughs> terrible dating skills, <laughs> you have another example, yeah? I do. So in the book, Women and Disabilities, that I mentioned earlier, there is an example of a woman named Carolyn Humphrey. And they said she was a really great employee, but that she had a history of tardiness and absenteeism because she had grooming and dressing rituals that took a really long time, sometimes all day. And she was a medical transcriber, and she sued the hospital that fired her, claiming that the obsessive trait that drove her to have these really long preparation times, she wasn't accommodated for it, as was required and is required under the ADA, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act, which we'll get into a little bit more later. And a federal judge threw that out of court, but then a three-judge panel of the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals decided in 2001 that she had a good point, and they sent her case back to trial. Mm Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of 
I can't believe I'm bringing this up again. Scrubs. I've, for some reason, I've been making a lot of references to Scrubs lately, and I'm kind of surprised by it. But there's an episode where um, the, one of the doctors, I think he's a, a guest rotating doctor, played by Michael J. Fox, had obsessive compulsive disorder. And it just, I, I think at the end, it was a very poignant moment where it showed how all of these hoops he was going through and all of the time he was having to a lot to kind of, not, he wasn't hiding it, but he was trying to make it not impact anyone else. He was trying to manage it. Yeah. Based on other people's expectations. Yes, yep. yes. And just seeing his frustration and pain around that. Um, it stuck with me clearly because that show has not been on the air for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine you have a treasure trove of like random moments in TV and film in your head. I do. I do. That That is what my brain definitely hung on to of all the things it could have. And we have some some stats about how workplaces are so terrible at addressing invisible conditions, especially for women. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So there was this survey that the Working Mother Research Institute did that showed that employees are pretty crappy when it comes to addressing disabilities that they can't see as opposed to visible ones. And this study was one that broke things down into, oh, this is what happens to women with disabilities and women with invisible illnesses a little bit. Like, there was more that, you know, could have been done when specifically thinking Mm -hmm. about the intersection between women and invisible illnesses. But... It found that that crappiness starts even before someone is hired, like during the recruiting process. Generally, people with invisibility said they were less likely to have accommodations in place when they started their jobs and were more likely to have their requests for accommodations rejected than people with visible disabilities. And obviously, people need accommodations. Yeah. Um, And 31% of women with disabilities reported being told their accommodations weren't necessary versus just 18% of men. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so that's a pretty significant difference. Yeah. And the survey also found that people with invisible disabilities are most frequently turned down on their request for flexible work schedules, which you brought up earlier, mm-hmm. um, and schedule modifications and workspace modifications, things that are in a lot of workplaces easy to work with, with a person on. And as compared to people with visible disabilities, people with invisible disabilities report being less satisfied on the job, having greater difficulty balancing work and personal life demands, Mm -hmm. and being less optimistic about their ability to advance at work, which you also brought up earlier. Yeah, and we are focusing a lot on the U.S. here, but I do like bringing in data from other countries where we can, so I think it just captures more of the story. And the the study I was mentioning earlier showed the same thing in Australia. Right. Um, And I did want to bring up the media because, again, this whole brain. uh, We have started to see more honest portrayals of women with invisible illness in our media. But for a long time, (laughs) sick, young, attractive women were treated as a narrative device in a story about men learning to really live life, (laughs) get out there and appreciate it. (laughs) Because obviously all things are in service to men, right? (laughs) Yes. And I haven't seen most of those movies, but I knew exactly what particular genre they were talking about when I read read about that. Uh, and according to a 2015 report, only 2.4% of films featured a character with disabilities across the board, which is very low and unrepresentative. Yeah. Yeah, and I would I would 
hazard a guess that a lot of them are inaccurate and possibly offensive. Yeah. And I, I would guess, too, that a lot, well, a lot has changed when it comes to mental illness. It's yeah. Specifically, right? Like, that's a huge category. Obviously, there are a lot of things under that umbrella. Mm-hmm. But oh, you can't see it all the time, you know? So right. a, a lot has changed about the way people portray mental illness positively. Like, obviously, we have a long way to go. Yeah. But, yeah. So, the law. Do you want to get into it? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I fought the law. Okay, I'm not going <laughs> to. Um, like, as you were saying, these things apply globally, but um, workplaces are very different all over the world, and regulation in workplaces are very different all over the world. And even in the United States alone, different industries have different policies. Um, thank God we're no longer employing children illegally. <laughs> we've come a ways in the way that we've, we've done things when it comes to employment in, in the United States. And obviously there's stuff like fights over the minimum wage. But one of the things that has been good over the past, you know, few decades is that is the Americans with Disabilities Act. So in 2008, amendments to the ADA broadened the definition of what a disability is. So the point of the ADA is to prohibit discrimination against people with disabilities and ensure that people with disabilities have the same employment opportunities as those without disabilities. So it requires employers to provide, quote, reasonable accommodations to people with disabilities. And I know, like, it gets really jargony sometimes. Like, you're probably asking, what are reasonable accommodations? Yep. (laughs) It sounds like a lot of syllables. Um, But they include things like allowing for a self-paced workload, flexible work hours, modifying job responsibilities, and allowing for leave paid and unpaid during periods of hospitalization, assigning an understanding supervisor. Yeah. Getting to empathy there a little bit. Yeah. Um, modifying work hours to attend appointments, like ones with a psychiatrist, um, providing easy access to supervision and support in the workplace, and providing frequent guidance about job performance. So the ADA doesn't explicitly use the words invisible conditions, but it does still provide protections for people with invisible conditions as it protects people with a, quote, physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities of such individual. And I think in thinking about that, and like you said, you didn't even know until like you read list that you could be considered under something like this. So I think a lot of people don't recognize and don't know when they're in the workplace when they can be protected because they don't know that they're under the protections of the the ADA. And there are a lot of caveats and different situations. Like it comes on a case-by-case basis a lot of the time. And But yeah, it's important to know, first of all, yes, I can be protected and I, I might be protected yeah. under the ADA. Yeah, that's important. Step one, <laughs> knowledge is power. I, I will also say that... Um, we are really lucky in our office that we have a lot of those things. We have flexible work hours, and we have a pretty good work-from-home policy, and that is one of the things I am most thankful for at this job. Yeah, and because that's been the policy, I don't know what it was like before I was here. Mm -hmm. I imagine it was a lot of the same, but that's been the policy since I've been here. So I feel like that's definitely a privilege because a lot of the people, that's not there, so they have to be the one to create that change. Yeah. So the burden kind of becomes on the person who the burdens are already on. <laughs> yeah. Um, to to create change within a workplace. So yeah, we're definitely lucky. Yeah. I 
if I went to a job after this, I feel like I'm spoiled now. I wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> I have to be here from what hours? <laughs> <laughs> what is clocking in? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Really? <laughs> yeah, so the ADA has created a lot of meaningful change in society, but just because it exists and provides protections for a lot of people doesn't mean that people with disabilities still don't face discrimination in practice. It's still hard for people with invisible disabilities to receive protection from discrimination and really feel comfortable disclosing um, their condition to their employer. So legislation like, you know, things like the ADA is important, but so is changing the culture around how we treat and think about people who have chronic illnesses and disabilities in the workplace. Yeah, and that's something that's come up several times on the show is uh, our conversation around mental health is a great example has been it's been so stigmatized and we just haven't talked about it and it's something at work you you just kept to yourself and I think that is changing I think it's changing very slowly but it is changing yeah you know sometimes we want a revolution we can't always get a revolution right (laughs) (laughs) not always (laughs) a good example uh migraines which is one, again, I've had migraines since forever, and I didn't know that they would fall under this. And um, they are very painful. And I, I remember as a kid when I would get them, people wouldn't believe me. They thought I was a kid just trying to get out of school. And then you would have a kid who is on the floor and vomiting. And I would always kind of laugh later because I told you. Yeah. <laughs> you did not believe me. Right. But it is a lot more women suffer from migraines than men, at least that's what the numbers show. Um, Out of the 38 million Americans estimated to suffer from migraines, 73% are women. That's a lot. That is a lot. I have a lot of friends, a lot of female friends that suffer from migraines. Yeah. And they can cause visual issues, dizziness, vomiting, intense pain, and other serious symptoms. When untreated, migraines can... Uh, can make people miss work, oh, for sure. And women may experience migraines more frequently because of hormonal changes. Because of misperceptions about the severity of migraines and their conflation with common headaches, many women face discrimination in the workplace when they get migraines. If a woman has to miss work or a meeting because of a migraine, an employer may assume she is irresponsible, inconsiderate, and unable to plan effectively. But... I'm just telling you straight up, as someone who has them, you're you're lucky to be able to move. Like you're you're probably in a dark room, yeah, just counting down. I I always try to fall asleep first. That's my <laughs> fall asleep. For, what do you mean by fall asleep first? Because I get I get like a warning. I know it's coming, and so if oh. I can fall asleep before it hits, sometimes I'll miss it. Okay, but. Not always. I'm horrible at falling asleep. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> but when I was a kid, every now and then that would work. I'd be at a sleepover. I, probably I, I was seen as so weird, but I'd be like, I've got to go to bed now. I've got to go to bed now. Now. <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows. Right. Nobody, exactly. Nobody knows, but you do. I do, yeah. Um, so depending on the situation, migraines can qualify a woman for protection under the ADA. So... For your migraines to qualify as a disability under the ADA, you need to show that they're serious enough to limit your ability to perform your job or specific job tasks 
in your work environment. And you also have to demonstrate to your employer that you're a quote-unquote qualified individual with a disability. And if you're applying for a job or even if you're an existing employee, you have to, it's your responsibility to tell your employer if you need an accommodation. So you have to disclose it to your employer if you need an accommodation. And then you can follow up with a request in writing that documents the limitations that you have. That said, like we said earlier, like just because the ADA exists doesn't mean things don't happen in practice. Your employer can still let you go. They can still fire you even when you're protected under the ADA for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, And they can refuse your request for an accommodation as well under certain circumstances. So if your request is denied for reasons that weren't explained, for unknown reasons, you can file what they call a discrimination charge with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or the EEOC or with your state's enforcement agency. So if they dismiss the charge, you can continue on that process and file a lawsuit. So mm-hmm. like we, like I said earlier, like a lot of people don't even know they're protected under the ADA in the first place mm-hmm. or don't think about it. So that's step one in like trying to fight any sort of discrimination against women that comes that has to do with invisible illness um, in the workplace. And, you know, that also probably means that a lot of people don't know <laughs> the steps to take. Yeah. Like, you know, where sure. to start, especially if they don't have an HR department. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's kind of important to just get that out there. I agree. And I know that this sounds daunting and stressful, but it is something that I think is worth pursuing. It's really, we've touched before on how when you're not believed and you see your story like delegitimized and invalidated on on a public stage or just with people that you know how that can be damaging for you. So I know that it's scary <laughs> to get your request approved to pursue the process, but I do think it's worth at least knowing about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of people who have filed discrimination charges with the EEOC between 2005 and 2010, did have invisible disabilities. Um, So the most commonly cited conditions in those charges that were filed were invisible disabilities, according to the analysis that researchers did at Cornell University's Employment and Disability Institute. So there is hope. There's hope. I mean, we can call it that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't mean to be cynical. Um, Yeah, there are protections for us. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of people are using them already, so I, I hope that gives people who feel unprotected at work a little bit of hope, too. Yeah. yeah. So on what you were saying just now about it being daunting, um, a huge conversation in thinking about women and invisible illness in the workplace is disclosure. Yeah. So as I said, you have to disclose um, your illness or your disability if you want to be, if you want to receive accommodations in the workplace. And that's not an easy task all the time, especially as a woman. No. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So if they don't, if people don't disclose their disabilities at work, it could affect their performance. This is based on data. And their colleagues may assume it's a matter of that person's competence. So that burden of concealing a disability really creates strain in social and work situations that might negatively affect the health and well-being of a person. And in contrast, 
Studies have shown that disclosure relieves the strain of hiding the condition, which we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. like how much labor that is, yep. and increases the likelihood that the person will find and develop a social support network with others who might have similar conditions or experiences. Yeah, and I talked about in our episode on on CPTSD how having that conversation, I didn't have the strength to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think, I'm almost 100% positive that my boss at the time would have totally been on board. She mm-hmm. would have been a really great, helpful, supportive system for me. She would have worked to make things easier for me. And looking back, I wish I had had the strength to do it. I didn't, mm-hmm. but I wish that I had. But that's okay, though, you know? Yeah. Like, a lot of people aren't there yet, too. I'm yeah. Sure a lot of people would connect with you on that level. Yeah, and I think that is something to to keep in mind is it's not easy mm-hmm. and don't be too hard on yourself if right it's kind of like women already have to maintain a certain image in the workplace yeah of being twice as strong and yep. twice as productive and and having to disclose something that makes you quote unquote look weaker in other people's eyes yeah um it's it's not an easy task because the thing is, people with invisible disabilities still don't disclose their conditions, especially if they're young and have recently acquired the disability. So that's because disclosure still comes with risks. And disclosing could harm your competitiveness and workplace relationships. So in that survey that we talked about earlier, the Working Mother Survey, 52% of people with invisible illnesses said they were comfortable discussing their disability with HR. Our coworkers. So that's a lot of people yeah. who still don't feel comfortable with it. And to have that conversation, you know, you have to mm-hmm. be at a certain point. That's because they still may face prejudice or negative judgment for others. Like if you think about something like mental illness, like there's still a lot of stigma around mental illness, just thinking about the way we speak about it, yeah. just our lax language and saying, you know, things, terms that really, you know, using them willy-nilly essentially sure just we know that general culture around mental illness isn't accepting so also disclosure can raise questions about whether a disability is quote-unquote legitimate yeah so in addition to dealing with the stigma that's associated with having a disability people with invisible disabilities risk being viewed as someone who's falsely seeking like some sort of like gain out of telling people that they have an issue like we want to be pitied or have special Sympathy, treatment or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. So other people in the workplace can call them complainers, hypochondriacs, attention seekers, uh, and which can cause even more distress on a person who was already dealing with some sort of condition or illness in the first place. Yeah. And even employees with disabilities may be monitored more closely than others or harassed. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Absolutely. I... I don't understand that urge people feel to have you prove to them that you're not trying to fake and, I don't know, get some kind of special treatment. I That, to me, doesn't make any sense. I feel like, in general, people really think you should do a lot of work just to live your life. Like, why, go through, why would I go through all the trouble mm-hmm. of pretending to have a disability? Like, I have, I have issues... I already have issues I have to deal with. <laughs> yeah. Why would I make this up? <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, 
It doesn't make sense. It's no. illogical. Mm-mm. And like you were saying, uh, something that I found, a common thread I found in this research is when people disclose, they do feel that they have to work harder mm-hmm. to show like, see, I can still do right. do my work. And And to your point, women already have that. Yeah. So it's right. like compounded. Double indemnity. I don't know if that's the right word. Yes, but I <laughs> think we indemnity. all understand where <laughs> you're coming from. So when women specifically deal with the symptoms of invisible illnesses at work, like frequently being late to work because your OCD took you longer time to prepare, like we talked about earlier, or maybe going to the bathroom often, or maybe needing something like a text reader, they face these gender stereotypes of women being lazy or being incompetent or being unprofessional. So they may turn to like bias avoidance, which is trying to avoid all of those stigmas. Mm-hmm. So they'll just grin and bear it because they're afraid their needs will be perceived as weaknesses and they may lose their jobs. So that's one thing that in the research, it seems like a lot of women are afraid of is losing their jobs and a lot of job markets are precarious. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, and the job is probably the thing in the first place that's able to help them afford treatment for the condition they get. So just think of all the pressure, yeah. like, disclosing puts on a woman because of that. It feels like this double-edged sword, like, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Yeah, it's it's like a weird, never-ending, the snake eating the tail Or a boros. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Because... Like you were saying when it was all meta at the beginning of not talking about it in the workplace, but we're right. talking about it in the workplace. It, it's, we need to have these conversations more, but you can't blame people for not having the conversations more. Right, right. Yeah. It's not the job of the people to institute these types of changes right. in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a ton of conditions that disproportionately affect Young women specifically, like autoimmune diseases, and millennials, which is like 18 to 36 at the time of this survey. I know it changes all the time and different people say different things. Uh But I think specifically in this research are the largest generation in the U.S. workforce. So a lot of working women are bound to have disabilities, yet people still disbelieve young women who have health issues based on assumptions that young women should be healthy, So that can really make disclosure feel kind of, like, pointless. Mm -hmm. So even doctors, like you you brought up earlier, even doctors disbelieve women who say they're sick when they can't see or explain the issue. So there's a Bitch Media article in which the author, Kate Horowitz, describes going to the doctor after she felt weak, fatigued, and dizzy, and hot with headaches for a while. And her doctor... A guy, a dude, told her she had conversion disorder and that she had a traumatic event in her childhood that she converted into performing the illness, like she was making it up. Uh So she didn't find out that she had hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome until six years later when she was in grad school. And this story, I know a lot of women have it, but I can totally relate to it because I've been through that same situation where a doctor really discounted something that was real that was going on in my life. So when I was in college, I went to the emergency room when I had a panic attack, but it was like it happened at the same time that I really felt like 
I couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. And so I was telling the doctor, I feel like I can't breathe. Like, there's something going on. And after waiting a really long time in the ER, which I will break from this a bit to say that women spend more time than men. They wait more time than men when mm-hmm. they go to the ER, um, which goes for this goes back to this idea of thinking women's pain isn't as serious. Yeah. But so, yeah, I saw the doctor and my mom was there with me, I think. And the doctor said, he after no test, essentially, mm-hmm. is anything going on in your life right now? It's probably just anxiety. Uh, gave me an anti-anxiety pill that made me feel like a marshmallow mm-hmm. and just kind of like sent me on my way. Yeah. And I was like, I still feel like I can't breathe. <laughs> so, uh... so, yeah, I was like, maybe that was a panic attack, but... I still feel like I can't breathe. And Mm -hmm. so it took me going to a couple of places and finally coming to this black woman doctor who I can't even remember what she gave me, but found out that I had some sort of like swelling or inflammation of the esophagus. Mm -hmm. So it's like, this is like right online, like with the data. Yeah. So that can be treated. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, um, it's just, it happens all the time. Like, I'm not the only person that this happens to. No, it's one of the most frustrating things to me. We did an episode on doctors not believing women, and I think on average it takes nine years longer for a woman to get diagnosed. I think it was endometriosis specifically. Mm -hmm. But diagnosis takes longer. Getting treated in the emergency room takes longer. And women die the heart disease is the example specifically they gave. Um, it leads to death, the fact that doctors are not taking their their pain and their symptoms seriously. Right. Uh, right. Oh, yeah, that's a big point. Yeah. Um, it's irreversible, you know, the damage that a person can do by not diagnosing someone earlier. Yeah, think of all the years that you've spent needlessly in pain or struggling with something. In this case, I lately, I've been struggling with uh, anger, outlets for anger, and I I just can't stop thinking about how much we prioritize male pleasure, success, at the expense of mm-hmm. female pain. Mm-hmm. And we legitimize one and we laud one, and the other is like, just shut up. Right. Just go away. Anyway, we're going off on a slight tangent, but it has been something I've been thinking about a lot lately, and it's it's one of the things that it makes me angry, like, immediately, how quickly we we just don't believe. Or even if we, like, say, oh, yeah, I remember once, I I think I've told this story on the show before, too, I had, like, these severe headaches where I was passing out, and they sent me to to a neurologist, and I remember him saying, well, you're just going to have to find a way to live with it. So it was like, it's acceptable for women to be in pain, I think. Like yes. It's sort of like, okay. Well, that goes to the idea that women are supposed to be strong. Like, we have babies. We have a high pain yeah. tolerance. And obviously, we could deal with this. Like, we're superhuman. <laughs> and that's specifically for black women. That's the stereotype that we face. Like, mm-hmm. we're supposed to be super women. We're supposed to be superheroes. There's myth around us being this magical and all-powerful and able to take on all of this pain. 
mm-hmm. and bear the burden of pain for everyone else. Yeah. So when we think about fibromyalgia specifically, a lot of women really end up what is called catastrophizing about the condition to really emphasize how serious it is. Yeah. And people with invisible illnesses in general really need to repeatedly remind others about their impairments because not every day is the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know exactly what that is because, again, going back to my migraines, sometimes I wanted... I wanted it to get worse just so people would believe me. Mm. Like, if I vomited, then, of course. Yeah. Yep. Clearly, she's not making it up then. But the the headache part, the invisible part, mm. people very ready to dismiss that. Yeah. So, I, I understand this. Catastro- catastrophizing. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting... I've never seen that before. It is. It's a mouthful. hmm And going back to our Painful Sex, Women in Pain episode, this has come up time and time again, the issue of not believing women when they're in pain, um, when they say they have a disability, it comes down to how women look and how they present or don't present and of how the other person is taking that in. And there's the added emotional labor cost and pressure for folks, especially women who are often perceived as weaker, to hide it. Or, yeah, again, to prove that they deserve the job, that they're working hard through this. They're Yeah, they're real go-getters. Yeah. And... Uh, But don't go too far because then you're a bitch. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And often women who disclose are told to take time off to get well. I saw that come up a lot, which Mm -hmm. isn't going to happen if you have a chronic illness. It's in the name. Yeah. Um, Or they might be accused of, yeah, exaggerating, being hypochondriac, lazy, complain too much. And yet, and yet at the same time, also are accused of not being a better advocate for themselves. People want their cake and to eat it too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's, it's kind of a paradox. If you don't display emotion, you aren't believed. If you do, you're hysterical. So again, there's a lot of tightropes we're bringing up here where you can't, there's no winning. Right. And there's this, this 2015 study that really put it, used a word that I thought was really appropriate is that disclosure can be a sort of dance um, for women with fibromyalgia, specifically in the workplace, because in reality, disclosure is like a lot more complicated than just a planned action that's done to get accommodations. Oftentimes, disclosure is like improvised and it happens in everyday conversations when somebody needs something in that moment and risks are taken into consideration and risk avoidance and risk Reduction. Mm -hmm. So that happened when women in that study needed to explain, like, there there are a few instances in which that happened in the study for the women, and that's when they needed to explain their fluctuating workability, when others needed reminding about their invisible impairments, and when their work relationship changed. Mm -hmm. So because they can't control how people responded to their disclosure— they controlled whether they divulged the stigma and how much impairment they revealed and how much they exposed themselves to scrutiny. Mm-hmm. So there is hope in this as well, um, <laughs> that more companies are encouraging people to disclose their disability. Mm-hmm. We have a little more for all of you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor.
we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So something that really comes up in thinking about this conversation of invisible illnesses and disabilities in the workplace is this idea of privilege or passing that like having an invisible illness can sometimes function as passing as someone without disabilities. So some ways of passing can include not disclosing certain information about yourself or like avoiding having adaptive and assistive aids like canes or walkers or wheelchairs or like only telling a few people about your illness or disability. So no one can immediately tell that you have a disability or illness if it's invisible. So you don't often have to face the same stigma or judgment and problematic actions that people with readily visible disabilities do. So that's a, that functions as a sort of privilege. But on the other hand, no one can tell immediately that you have a disability or illness. So they may think that the condition can't be that bad if it even exists at all. Mm-hmm. So it can kind of feel like people with invisible disabilities fit in with neither people with disabilities nor people without disabilities, which can feel kind of alienating sometimes. And passing, quote-unquote passing, can enforce structures that say a person must be able-bodied to be treated well. Yeah. And it's not always a choice, though. And when it is a choice, it's just that. Because a lot of the time, passing can be a protective strategy. And other times, people are passed on. Like, it's other people who assume that a person doesn't have the disability. Right. In an article on the Feminists with Disabilities for a Way Forward blog, an author describes the guilt of passing. Quote, sometimes I don't feel quite real or as though I'm cheating, an intruder in someone else's identity. With regard to being disabled, this has some nasty consequences. In the past, I've gotten needs met either because I can't bear to out myself or because someone doesn't quite think I'm truthful. Passing doesn't mean I'm not struggling to remain standing while we're talking. I struggle with passing and being passed. Sometimes I try and do it to feel safer, never safe, and lose my integrity. Sometimes I am passed, and it's a mix of delight and a loss and a damage. Whatever I do, it's never enough. I'm never enough. I just found that quote so impactful just because it's really complicated. Like, it's complex. And that struggle is a struggle in everyday life for people with invisible disabilities. And it's a struggle in the workplace as well as an extension of that. So... It goes back to the idea of disclosure, like you're already facing these issues that you just spoke about, and on top of that, you're a woman, you know, so you just have to deal with a lot of things. And this is something that I feel guilty about all the time, too, because I have MS or multiple sclerosis, and it doesn't always present itself in everybody. It's It really varies wildly from person to person how it presents, mm-hmm. and it's also like a progressive disease. So you can be a certain way at one point in your life and invisible and be visible because you're using an assistive aid at another point in your life. And I feel because I'm at a place where you can't tell at all in certain situations, you can only, it sometimes has Mm flare-ups. So in that case, it can become visible. But because you can't really see my illness, I often feel so guilty and don't feel like I fit into one group or another, I'm not quite, like like the author says, whatever I do, it's never enough. I'm never enough because I don't feel 
I have this privilege to where people can't tell, so I'm not necessarily a person with disabilities, but in the moments where I am more affected by it, in the smaller ways, in the everyday ways, and in the more noticeable ways, then I feel like I should say something about this. Like, I should be louder about this for all the people who have these illnesses that they deal with that nobody can see. So I just thought, you know, this idea of having privilege and not having a privilege at the same time because nobody, when nobody knows, how are they going to address it? Mm-hmm. So it goes back to that idea of empathy yeah. and not assuming. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it is it is complicated. And I have often felt that way too where I'm almost embarrassed to include myself. I don't feel like I'm suffering enough. Yeah. Ooh, that's a perpetual problem for women, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're touching on a lot of things in this episode. Yeah, we are. Um, but we do have some some hopeful notes to end on, some ways to hopefully create change. One, I, I mean, to start off with, it, it is a feminist issue, and we should treat it as such. Yes. Yes, ensure people with disabilities in general are not invisible. Right, because we're speaking specifically about invisible illnesses today, but in general... People with disabilities are invisible in a lot of conversations, including the feminist one. So that should be said. Um, And also, we need to educate people on and raise awareness of invisible illnesses. The Invisible Disability Project says they're a, quote, social cultural movement and an educational media project that consciously disrupts invisibility imposed upon unseen disabilities at the intersections of race, class, gender, and sexuality. So they're just one organization that's bringing visibility to people with invisible illnesses. And then employers can take steps to address the needs of people with invisible disabilities, like providing uh, flexibility and centralizing accommodation funding. Right. And the thing about that, too, is that a lot of people may think that it's expensive to accommodate a person with disabilities' needs in the office, and that's not the case. Right. Um, At all, a lot of the time. So that's not an excuse. And another thing that we can think about is disclosure, which we talked about earlier, removes that emotional labor of bearing the burden of like really juggling that illness without having the accommodations that you need to get your work done. And changing that workplace culture so women feel comfortable disclosing as they feel fit. And I know I make it sound easy by squeezing it into one line, (laughs) and it's not that easy. Um, But it's something we can continue to work on. And when making recommendations, professionals shouldn't imply that disclosure is something that only has positive consequences. They should really think about weighing the risk and learn from their clients about how their workplace environment is and the relationships in their workplace, as well as what they think about their risk of disclosure. Yeah, it it kind of reminds me of um, the conversation around sexual harassment and reporting to HR and how that can have negative Mm -hmm. impact on whoever was reporting. It's not always a positive thing, and we need to look at why that is and try to improve that. And another thing that we've been talking about a lot lately is destigmatizing mental health and all the conversations around that, too. And... I've just been thinking about how in this conversation and this whole thing, we're penalizing people for being sick 
for something that's out of their control and then telling them they're lucky to have a job, which is terrible. Yeah. Um, so that needs to change. And talking about this and hopefully bringing it up, I, I learned a lot doing the, the research for this episode. And I, I think that a lot of listeners will learn I have learned something, hopefully. <laughs> We've done our job, Eves. <laughs> and I think that is that is an important step. That is step one, is to start talking about this and to realize how many people are impacted right. by these things. I agree with you, Annie. Yeah. I, thank you, Eve. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, creating a, a better workspace for everyone, a workplace and workspace. Uh, for women with disabilities, creates a better workplace in general. It does. It's important to remember that this isn't some isolated issue that only revolves around certain sets of people. Like the work that we need to do in creating a better workplace for women with disabilities is work that improves industries and workplaces in general. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine. If I was running a company, I, I would want, I would be a good boss and I would want people to be happy. But also I would imagine you would want people to be the most productive and best they can be. Right. And the irony of that is that people think when they, I'm generalizing, but a lot of employers think that when they hire people who have disabilities or when a person with disabilities discloses their condition, that that means they're going to be less productive mm-hmm. and that perspective needs to switch to to what can I do as an employer to make sure that all of my employees are the most productive that they can be. Mm-hmm. And it really, it it's not difficult. It doesn't have to be. Right. It really doesn't. <laughs> it really doesn't. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much, Eves, for being a co-host with me this week. Thank you for inviting me on to this warm, lovely... <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me on to Sminty. Yes. Uh, it's been it's been really enlightening to talk about this, and it feels like a privilege to be able to talk about this in the workplace. And I'm happy that we got to do it today. I am too. And please come back anytime. Pitch me any of your ideas. We'd love to have you again. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> And we would also love to hear from you listeners. You can email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at momstuffpodcast, and on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks as always to our producer, Andrew Howard. <laughs> <laughs>